Hi everybody, this is Blaine checking in for my first one-off show. Just wanted to take a brief moment to apologize for the hiatus. Um, I guess short and the sweet of everything would be, truthfully, life events got in the way. A couple of issues with work and the lack thereof. We're back and today I have the opportunity to catch up with a friend of mine that... Well, I haven't spoken to in many a year. He reached out to me from out of nowhere and promptly volunteered to come on and be my first guest on my first one-off show. So, without further ado... So, uh, today we get to catch up with an old roommate of mine, which, in all honesty, I've had absolutely no contact with for the better part of 25 years at this yeah. point, and... This gentleman reached out to me out of nowhere about a month ago on Facebook, and we decided, what the hell, we would make him part of Appalachian Pie since he grew up there, and especially, well, I'll let him tell his own story here, but we were roommates, we were in theater together with several of our friends at ETSU, and I had this pyromaniac side to myself, <laughs> and that was one of the first things that he mentioned when he reached out to me on Facebook. Oh, yes. Everyone, Wonderful. welcome, Scott. Oh, thank you very much for having me today. Nice to catch up with you after all these years. Been a very long time, like you said. It certainly has. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you were mentioning your, your pyromania back in the day. Yeah, that was one of the things, one of my first memories of you. You had this... Uh, fondness for taking if i recall correctly lighter fluid and making designs on our dorm floor like anarchy signs and peace signs and stuff like that and then suddenly you would just light it all up <laughs> and so we would have this flaming anarchy sign in the middle of the dorm and i was always surprised that the fire alarms didn't go off because you know you, you you had a good time doing that, it seemed like. <laughs> I will n neither confirm nor deny those stories. <laughs> it's all alleged, but um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, I could see where that may have happened. Mm -hmm, probably so. <laughs> a couple times anyway, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that was what, what was that, like 19, that would have been 91, 92, wouldn't have it? <laughs> I'm wanting to say that myself, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Almost 24, 25 years now. Jeez. When we were all but basically living in Galbraith Theater at that time. That's true, because you both were... Uh, well, you were more on the techie side of things, if I recall, weren't you? I mean, Yep. I was pretty much working with the lights and a little bit of the sound and a lot of the stage prep and all that. So. Right, right. And then I was doing acting, because I remember the first year there we did... Uh, 
The first show I did there was The Diary of Anne Frank. Didn't You worked on that, didn't you? Uh, yes, as well as, if I recall correctly, another person that's going to come on this at some point, Danny Rashani, oh, was right. also in that. And was, uh, was Leah in that? Yeah, Leah was in it. Leah was in yeah. it. Danny was in it. Alicia Brevard. Laura. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. Hey, she's one of my friends, actually, on Facebook. Nice. Uh, yeah, and Laura. Laura, the girl from... White Science Hill. What was her name? The blonde, Laura White. Laura White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't heard that name in a long time, actually. So yeah, she played Anne Frank, and then I was her boyfriend. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so after you and I had gone to school and roomed around together and everything, um, we lost touch, and you brought it up earlier when we were talking that we kind of reconnected a couple of years later at UT. How exactly did all of that go down? Well, uh, let's see. We were living together at ETSU, like I said, in, in I think at the beginning of fall of 92. And then I moved into an apartment uh, later on that year. And then I ended up transferring after 92. Spring of 92, I left ETSU and then I transferred to UT in the fall of 92 um and then i don't think i saw you that first year i don't feel like it was that first year i feel like it must have been in 93 when i just i must have just accidentally ran into you or something it's hard for me to recall those are blurry days you know (laughs) and um i think i ran into you and we just i don't even remember where but i remember learning that you were thinking about going to missouri to become a mortician at that point if i recall correctly but uh yeah and so it was just a haphazard you know meeting if i recall back then and why the hell didn't we hang out there that's what i was trying to figure out actually you know but you know i was in a blur back then so (laughs) that might have been part of it i'm not sure how long were you there at ut uh, graduated in 95, actually, because after all the credit transfers and all that crap, I got hung up for an extra year. Okay, I got you. Well, I graduated in 94, but I was still there because I went on to do a master's degree. And so I left UT officially in 96 when I moved to France for a while. And you so, moved to France? Uh, yeah, I lived in France for a couple of years, actually. I, uh... My first year there, I was what you call an assistant d'anglais, so an English assistant, and I taught in a high school in the north of France, outside of Ville, for a year. And then um, after I came back from there, I began my PhD program at Florida State, and then uh, I got another opportunity to work in France. Um, I was at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris Sorbonne, and I was an English lecturer there for a, a time, for a year as well. And then, you know... So, yeah, I was in France for, actually, because I went back after that, too. I'd say a total of about two, two and a half years. So, if you don't mind me backing you up there for a second, um, as an English lecturer, what, you were teaching them English, or? Oh, at the Sorbonne? Yeah. Yes. um, It's basically reserved for people who are, you know, who are completing their PhDs in French, Um, and they, uh, it's opportunities for people like that, which is what I was doing. So I went there to teach English to um, people who were majoring in English in France or people who had to take English, you know. So I taught all levels of, you know, literature and language and laboratories and stuff like that. It was a pretty easy job. It was a nice job because I didn't work very much. It was like nine, ten hours a week because it's France, you know. And then I had a lot of free time to run around Paris. So... (laughs) Oh, very nice. Yeah, that would have been ninety-eight, ninety-nine. is when I was doing that, actually. So, you know, time gets by. <laughs> so, after you had lived there and everything, you still moved back here? Uh, well, let's see. How it went is I left UT in 96, right? Um, so, I was there from basically 92 to 96 at UT Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And then I went to France for a year. And then from there, I went straight to Tallahassee, Florida State, and I studied there for a year. Then I went to back to France for a year at the Sorbonne. And then I did come back to Florida State again for a year, then back to France for a summer, then back to UT, where I was a lecturer of French for a year. And then I moved to Portland after that. And that would, I moved to Portland in 2001. Yeah, 2001, three weeks before 9-11, actually. Good Lord. 
Okay, yeah. that's a lot of bouncing around. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I hesitate to ask this, but mm-hmm. Tallahassee. Yeah. <laughs> um, culture Florida. shock. Florida, huh? Was was it culture shock after having grown up where you? Oh, well, actually, let me stop that line of questioning for a second and. We never really told anyone where you grew up, um, how you're part of Appalachia. All right. Well, my roots to Appalachia go way back. Uh, in fact, I was just in Tennessee this past summer and was able to locate, like, my – was it my great-great-great-grandfather's grave? <laughs> and he actually just ten- happens to be buried only about five miles from where I grew up. So, like, my roots in Tennessee go back very far. <laughs> Uh, to about to the late 1700s, actually. Um, but I grew up in in Morristown, Hamlin County there. So in, actually in a smaller area of Hamlin County called Talbot. It's in between Morristown and Jefferson City. So um, I'm, I like, lived there, you know, for most of my life. I was born there and uh, lived there until I was about 24, I guess, really. And that's when I left. Um, and... Uh, so grew up in Morristown. My family's still there. My mom, my sister, my dad died about nine years ago. Oh, um, but sorry to hear all that. All my aunts and uncles and cousins—they're all still there in the hills of East Tennessee. I'm the one who got away. <laughs> nice. Well, just out of curiosity, since some people may or may not understand where Talbot is from your description. Did you go to Morristown City Schools, Jefferson oh, City, yeah. or was it a county school? Uh, no, I went to Morristown West High School. So, okay. um, so Talbot is just like an unincorporated part of Hamblin County, basically. Part of it's in Hamblin County, part of it's in Jefferson County. It's on the border there between the two. So but I happen to fall in the section that where all those kids went to Morristown West High School. Nice. So, so that's where I went. I graduated in 1990. So then the question begs to be asked, mm-hmm. how in the hell did your interest in French grow yeah. out of Appalachia? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. I wish I could answer it. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, you know, um, I guess, you know, as a young, even as a young kid, I was kind of always fascinated by languages and cultures, even though I hadn't even studied them. I was just, I remember being like five or six years old, just, uh, just being fascinated by the fact of, you know, people living and speaking in a different language to me that represent, that represented the fact that they were sort of perceiving a different reality than the one that I was living, you know, and I was kind of just fascinated by the whole psychology, I guess, of language learning, to tell you the truth, as a young, young kid, without realizing that that's what I was thinking about. And then um, I actually just, uh, there's a funny story, my friend Beth Williams, who I think you remember, perhaps, um, she and I were in eighth grade, and we had to sign up for classes for high school, and she tells the story, she's like, and I don't remember it, but she's like, she says that I was very adamant about I wanted us both to sign up for French. That was the only class I really cared to take in high school at the time when I was signing up in eighth grade. And I, it was just an interest, um, and uh, I was very good at it. It was very natural. It came very natural to me. And so just I never intended to end up doing a Ph.D. in it, but it just kind of uh, happened just because I kept following my interest. And really it was when I developed the love of French literature – when I'd gotten further into my studies, because I was always a literary person, obviously, being into theater and stuff. But I really liked French literature, which is actually what my PhD is in. And, uh, you know, I, and then I had those opportunities to go to France and stuff. And so it kind of just happened in a, in a weird way, you know. I don't have any French in my family or French background per se, but I had studied it since I was, what, 13, I guess is when I started. And now I'm 42, so it's been a long time. <laughs> wow, that was going to be my next question, was whether or not you had any French in your background. But no. since you already addressed it, no. A lot of people, you know, they think that. But uh, no, it's just one of those randomness, random things in life, I suppose, you know. But it was something that I, you know, I uh, just was naturally interested in and naturally had talents in. And I realized that from a very early age. So, 
just kind of pursued it. Well, if I could mm -hmm. trouble you for a moment, let's say for the sake of argument and just people, I obviously do not speak French. Mm -hmm. How how would you address someone, or for that matter, welcome them to Appalachia if they were to suddenly show up at the airport in lovely Bluffville or something? Uh-huh. You mean like if a French person? Is that what you're saying? Right. If If you were the welcoming party for that person and you had to say something to them to be like, hey, welcome here, and by the way, watch out for those rednecks, you know? Oh. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, a lot of times, you know, because uh, since I live out here in the Northwest, I mean, the culture is quite different, and I have uh, quite a few French friends. One in particular, her name is Nathalie, who... I see her pretty often, and uh, I the culture is so different here compared to there in Tennessee. And she has a lot of uh, issues with the culture here because it's very reserved. And I always tell her that I think she belongs in the South, just simply because. Uh, yeah, and I think French people are this way. Uh, people in the South and in Appalachia in general. I mean, it's a stereotype, but I think there's some truth to it. They tend to be a little bit more social. They tend to be more talkative, more outgoing, more willing to share their lives, you know. And French people are very much like that. And so I would let a, a French person coming, you know, arriving there realize that people in the South are pretty open, you know, especially there in Appalachia. Um, yeah, there are some negative aspects to life there. Obviously, there's racism and homophobia and, you know, certain, you know, ignorance on certain levels that everybody's kind of aware of. But at the same time, there's a, 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 a wisdom, I think, to the South. There is a, 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 a culture, a character that really is lacking, honestly, I feel, in other parts of the country in many ways, you know. There's a history there. And I think that a French person would appreciate that and you know, they would really appreciate also studying, like, the Native Americans in the area, like the Cherokee and stuff like that. So, you know, I would sort of tell them those kinds of things, you know, about Appalachia and what it means, you know, what they should know when they come there, I suppose. I hope that answers your question. I don't know if I did or not. Oh, no, it definitely <laughs> works along. But I, I guess part of what I was trying to get at is let's say – for example, I, for all practical purposes, was a French-speaking person, and mm -hmm. I jumped off of that plane, and I'm in Bluntville all of a sudden, and mm -hmm. holy crap, I don't know anybody. Right. Scott is sitting there. Scott's waiting on me. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you say to me in French as a welcome? Oh, in French. I say, ah, uh... <laughs> Bon, uh, bonjour et bienvenue uh, dans le Tennessee. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tennessee, right? <laughs> um, you know. And then I would just talk to them about the beauty of the place, probably, you know, like the mountains and things like that. <laughs> Very nice. Mm -hmm. So you alluded to it previously, and mm -hmm. I wasn't necessarily going to bring it up, but if you're mm -hmm. comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. um, Racism aside, homophobia mm -hmm. is part of the reason I did want to talk to you about this is sure. just – yes, there are people that have come out. There are people right. that have been in theater. There are people that have written. They have acted. They, they've done whatever, uh -huh. and some people are born that way in my opinion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. some people are not. And if I recall correctly, mm -hmm. you kind of went through a process to learn that you were that way. Well, I definitely went through a process. <laughs> it's not that I discovered that I was that way because it was something that I always knew about myself, right, from the very beginning as a young child of being gay. Um, but growing up in... East Tennessee and in, you know, Morristown, basically, which I consider the buckle of the Bible Belt in many ways. 
Um, I obviously hid my identity for a long time, and I did so out of necessity, um, I feel, because, you know, times were different then than they are now. You know, I grew up, I was born at the end of 72 and graduated high school in 90, so you're looking at the 70s and 80s in the South and East Tennessee, uh, you know, there are a lot of walls there, uh, a lot of barriers there for gay people, you know, um, I did, there is, at that point, at least for me, there was no, there was no gay community that I saw as a young child, you know, growing up in Morristown, it was all hidden, and I was quite aware of the attitudes that people had, and in people in my own family, so for those reasons, I went in the closet, as the phrase goes, or whatever, and stayed there quite, you know, a while in my life, because, um, I met some a girl when I was 17, whom you know, um, Amy, and um, we started dating, and I, wa- I just wasn't ready, you know, to deal with my identity, deal with my issues, and a part of me back then thought, oh, maybe it's just a phase that I'm going through or whatever. And so, and then, obviously, I developed feelings for Amy, because, you know, we had been together for such a long time, that it went all the way to the point to where we did get married when I, at 28, um, but, you know... By the time 30 rolled around, I was like, well, you know, I'm still young, but, you know, I'm 30 now, and I don't know that I can continue to, you know, do this, even though I loved, you know, her very much. Um, I just had, it just came to this point to where I was very depressed about hiding who I was and everything, and and then I was living in the, the Northwest now, and it was a different climate, and so I ended up telling her, and... Luckily, she was very understanding because we had been together for a long time and been through a lot, and uh, and we're still actually <laughs> very, very, very close, even though you know we're divorced now and everything. So, it, so that was my process. If you want to talk about a process, but in terms of like knowing that about myself, it's something that I knew when I was pro- under the age of five, really. You know, but just wasn't ready to deal with it. Hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, but it's one of those things that you addressed in your mm-hmm. in your entire commentary there. That yes, um, it, it's not that easy to come out if you're that kind of person there at the no, time, especially when we grew up. Oh yeah, the the seventies and eighties, and and I grew up like I said in Morristown, and you know Tennessee. It's a very Baptist, at least Morristown is, and I think most of East Tennessee is. It, it was a very Baptist, uh, conservative, you know, mentality there. And so, in my family, there are many people in my family who also, you know, shared those same beliefs and stuff. And so, yeah, it, I felt like I, in many ways, had to stay in the closet at that time for one i was a kid and you don't know how to deal with things as a kid those are hard issues you know that's why there's so many i think young people still today who kill themselves you know because those attitudes do still exist even though i think things have definitely changed a lot back then it was even more severe and in that kind of environment you know it just wasn't something that i felt like easily that i could do right you know so and it did cause me a lot of you know depression and things like that and anxiety because you know you can't really be yourself you can't really let people know you completely and that's hard to live with yeah well and outside of that and this will be the last question that i touch on dealing with that subject is just what happened when you finally had to i guess reveal that whole thing to your family um Uh, Was there a lot of drama that went on, or? Well, you know, luckily I live 3,000 miles away from my family. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, yes. (laughs) But, um, well, unfortunately, I had to do it over the telephone, right? Um, Because, you know, I was... That was just how it was. I was getting a divorce and everything, and you know, my I'm I'm close to my family. I don't want to paint the picture that I'm not close to my family. That they don't love me. I don't love them. None of that's true. But we're very close. It's a very tight knit family. Um, I, I was always sort of distant just because of who I was or whatever. But so I had to do it over the phone, and I talked to. I ended up telling my mom, and her first reaction was kind of just to deny it. You know, she was like, "Oh no, you are not." You know. 
and everything. And, um, you know, we really didn't talk about it a whole, whole lot. And unfortunately, because um, this would have been, like I said, uh, when was that? I can't remember. But anyway, it was just, it was a little bit before my dad ended up finding out that he had cancer. And so I don't know that my dad ever knew because I came out. My mom knew. I don't know that she ever discussed it with him. But on his 60th birthday, he got diagnosed with cancer, and they gave him three weeks to live. And he hung on for six, and so he died. And all that happened all at the same time. So like, I came out, and literally within, I don't know, three, four months or so, like my dad had died. So I don't know that he ever knew, to tell you the truth. Um, I don't know if my mom ever shared that with him. And today... They're understanding. It's still we don't really talk about it, but and I don't really talk generally to my family that much in the first place. On those, you know, on I don't know. I, I've always had sort of a distant, you know, relationship there to a certain degree. Okay, but you know, but I mean, they're. I mean, it's not like they. I mean, I still go home. I still they know about me and everything. I still go home. They. I just went on a cruise with them this past summer we still have a you know we're still involved and stuff it's just you know i guess left unsaid i suppose or whatever you know uh no i totally get what you're saying there yeah Mm -hmm. a lot of that happens whenever you're not the typical appalachian kid (laughs) right 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 but taking a step away from that just because you brought her up and i wasn't going to um Mm -hmm. You and Amy, if I recall correctly, she was at UT Martin, mm-hmm. and you were back and forth yeah. from there like crazy. <laughs> there for a while. Uh, yeah, we did do that, yeah. <laughs> and then you guys ended up getting married, spent yeah. however much time. Now, where is she exactly? Because she reached out to me on Facebook as well after you and I had reconnected. Yeah, because I told her that I had you know found you on there or whatever. And, and so I think she probably reached out uh, at that point, too, to friend you. Uh, that's a complicated story, <laughs> to tell you the truth. If there, you're not comfortable with it, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this much. Um, like, we have been, uh, well, let's see. Like I said, I came out when I was, actually, I was 31 and I'm 42. So, you know, we've been separated for 11 years and divorced officially for probably, I don't even know now, seven or eight years. We didn't divorce right away just because those things take some time, you know. Um... We're still very close. She lives out here in the Northwest. In fact, it's kind of weird, but she actually lives with me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but simply because and she's been living with me for two months now because um, she had lost her job down in Tacoma. And, you know, it's very expensive to live out here. Um, and I have a two-bedroom apartment, and um, I, I live in a very nice area of Washington, and um, she kind of wanted to get out of the city because I live in Bellingham now. And um, so she's moved up here for now, and we're both just trying to save money. So we're, we're just kind of renting a place, actually, at this point together for now. you know. And, and we live as friends, basically. So it's kind of a weird situation, I suppose, but that's what it is. <laughs> well, and nobody <laughs> faults you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's to save money primarily, you know. So... I guess the next big question would be, since you have gotten the PhD and everything, I understand that you're a professor mm-hmm. and have been working up there. Um, what's it like? Being a professor in the Northwest? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I like I like what I do. Um, it gives me a lot of autonomy and it allows me to explore the things that I'm interested in. I'm frustrated a little bit professionally in my life, um, simply because I'm not a tenured professor. Um, I had that offer that once in my life. Um, I had I was offered a position um, in Atlanta, but I was living in Portland at the time, and I had, didn't really want to move back right away, and so I didn't end up taking that tenured position, and that would have been back in 2005. And since then, I've been what you call a visiting assistant professor. People always ask me where I'm visiting from, and I say from the unemployment office, you know. <laughs> 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 but um, so I've, 
so I finished my PhD in 2003 and taught at University of Puget Sound for two years after I'd finished as a visiting professor. And then I was at Pacific Lutheran University. Both of those are in Tacoma. I was there for four years as a visiting professor. And then I was actually unemployed for six months, even though I had a lot of experience because of the economic crisis that hit. And so positions got eliminated. And then five years ago, um, back in January of 2000, in December rather, of 2009, they contacted me here because I had applied for a position and they wondered if I was interested in this visiting position again. And I was unemployed, so I took it. And come this January, it will be five years that I've been here. And recently, I've changed my status, has changed to what they call a senior lecturer. So. At least I'm not longer a visitor, I guess. So, but I, you know, but I enjoy what I do. I love teaching French. Um, I always have a good time doing it because you get to know your students on a very personal level when you teach a language, which is very different from most other subjects, you know, because um, you have to interact. Um, and like I said, I mean, I've been teaching. I taught my first college level French class when I was 22 at UT. So I've been doing it now for almost 20 years. <laughs> you know. So um, you're basically seasoned beyond your years and yeah. So there's a little bit of frustration there because of that, you know, cuz like I have publications and I have lots of experience and all this kind of stuff, but it's just the reality of today's economic uh, of our of today's economic uh, situation, you know, the humanities in general are being uh, you probably know this from your own background. But, you know, humanities are being kind of ousted from universities and languages in particular and particularly languages like French and German. You know, we are slowly, we're like a dinosaur in today's world, you know, in the academic world of today. So, but I'm happy that I have a job. I'm lucky that I have a job and, and it doesn't take up all my time. And so I find other things to keep myself amused, you know, on top of that. So. Um, <laughs> pardon me. There he goes, even though the door is closed, little bastard. <laughs> so um, just because you and I kind of half touch base with you making fun of me about German there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this has been an ongoing discussion with my fiance and I. Mm-hmm. She does not believe English is a Germanic language. Would uh, you like to disprove her? her or? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely a Germanic language. Okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's got the same grammar basically as as German and Dutch. You know, so I mean, and and a lot of the same vocabulary. No, it's it's Germanic. I mean, obviously, it has a lot of Latin influence from it because, well. Well, we also borrow borrow from French, Spanish, everything. Well, French was the official language of the English court for 300 years. Exactly. You know, and so you have a 60% of the, uh, how am I going to say this? 60% of French and English vocabulary are shared, you know? Mm. So, like, 60% of, uh, we share a common lexicon, if you will, uh, of roughly 60%. So, you know, it's just variations on pronunciation of the same word. So, but then, so, and that's because of Latin, and that's also because of modern influences like uh, of science and technology and stuff like that on the language, you know, and history. But, um, but it's Germanic. I mean, <laughs> English is definitely Germanic uh, in terms of its grammar. Because, you know, <laughs> you don't have... The verb endings, for one, like you do in, you know, the conjugations, per se, like you do in French and Spanish and the Romance languages, you know, just like you don't in German. They they simplify things in terms of, like, conjugations. No. You know, declensions, that's another story. But anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, I greatly appreciate the fact that you made that distinction with the Romance uh-huh. languages and everything because uh-huh. I've had that argument with people several times, but Uh-oh. it's neither here nor there. Right, right. <laughs> so, what? Anyway, now that you're in Washington, mm-hmm. what do you love about there that's kept you there for, if uh, I recall correctly, you said 2004, 2003? 
Oh, one? It's 2001. I, I came to Portland three weeks before 9-11. So, um, well, I loved Portland, I have to say. I lived there for two years, and I I think that's where the love affair of the Northwest uh, happened because it was such a nice city. I mean, everything about that city is just – it's quirky. It's got character. It's planned. You know, it's got – for America, it's got decent uh, – what's the word uh public transportation um you know it's liberal attitudes environmentalism all those things are very important um those are the things and the beauty up here i mean you know it's just uh you've got mountains and ocean all together you've got a really nice moderate climate summers are usually like 70 degrees and sunny you know i mean it does rain a lot uh, often although that's exaggerated uh, in the Nine months out of the year, it rains pretty, you know, but it's just a drizzle. It's not too bad, really. And it's just a really pretty area, you know, and with more liberal attitudes. I mean, it has its issues. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I mean, but uh, those are the things I like about it, you know. And I do like Portland better than I do Seattle (laughs) in many ways, to tell you the truth. Okay. um, I guess I'm a little confused by that because mm-hmm. growing up and especially coming to adulthood in the mm-hmm. 90s, Seattle was a thing that was tossed down our throat right. for right. the whole grunge rock scene and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But w- what makes the big difference then from Seattle versus Portland, in your opinion? Well, I mean, the two cities are similar, but um, Seattle is a little bit bigger. It's not a whole lot bigger, but it's a little bit bigger. Seattle is a, a lot more, it's becoming so. In the past, you know, couple of decades in particular, um, it's become so corporate. I mean, I mean, you got to think, you have Starbucks, you have Boeing, you have Microsoft, you know, you have these major, Amazon, you know, you have these major corporations there. So, it, to me, Seattle has moved away from its quirky artistic side and it seems to be more and more embracing this corporate mentality you know that i think is taking over you know the majority of major cities in the western world but um for instance like i said i lived in seattle for eight years i just moved up to bellingham a year ago one of the main reasons other than the fact that you know it was a long drive to get to work but one of the main reasons i moved up here is because in the past two years, in particular in Seattle, rents have just gone out. They've become outrageous because of the new development of Amazon that's there. And so, like, when I left, I was paying, like, what was it, $1,100, $1,200 for a studio, a one-room studio. Now, granted, I live in – yeah. A studio. Now, I, yes, one-room studio for 1200 bucks. Now, I granted, I lived on what's called Capitol Hill, so it's like the – it's the neighborhood, you know, but it's the center of the city too, pretty much, you know. And so it's 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 an expensive neighborhood, but it's just in the past three years, it just went up and up and up. And a one bedroom apartment in that city is running on average fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars just for a one bedroom, you know. And it's just getting very expensive. And at least Portland is still somewhat affordable, even though that's probably gonna change soon, you know. Um and it has held on to its quirkiness more so than I think Seattle. I mean, I love both cities, don't get me wrong, but I really did like Portland, I have to say. <laughs> so let's say for the sake of argument here for people trying to gauge in their heads, mm-hmm. I mean, Pacific Northwest versus mm-hmm. Appalachia. Oh, yeah. Um, would you compare Portland or Seattle more to Asheville? Portland is much more like Asheville than what Seattle would be. To tell you the truth, I, I would say I would say Asheville is a tiny Portland. You know, from from what I I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Asheville, even though I grew up pretty close. But from what I gather in the way that Asheville has changed over the years, I would say because Portland has that hippiness vibe to it, you know, that I think Asheville probably has. Seattle is less hippie, you know, <laughs> you know, it is, it's totally become much more corporate. I have to tell you, you know, so um, I would say, yeah, Portland and Asheville are similar, but Portland's obviously a lot larger, you know, 
Hmm. And probably a lot more diverse in terms of its populations and stuff like that, I would imagine. You know? But then there's Vancouver. I live actually closer to Vancouver, B.C. than any of those now. Oh, really? Yeah, I live uh, basically 50 miles. I live, I live 20 miles from the border and about 50 miles from Vancouver. And I live 90 miles from Seattle. So I'm actually closer to Vancouver now, which is weird. So how often do you actually run across the border? Uh, you know, I should do that more often. Um, I don't do it as much as you would think. Um, I've been up to Vancouver, I don't know, maybe five or six times. I'm starting to know the city a little bit better, you know. Um, crossing the border can be, I mean, normally it's okay, but you never know what you're going to run into. So I'm not always too keen on, you know, trying to do that. Because sometimes it can be really backed up for hours coming back into the U.S., you know, depending on the time and on the day and stuff like that. But it's a great city. That's a beautiful city up there. If you ever get a chance, you should definitely go. You should come up and visit, Blaine. <laughs> well, it sounds like a good honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, great, it's a great city, though, up there, Vancouver. It's very posh. It's like the L.A. of Canada, you know. The L.A. of Canada. Okay, yeah, I'm going to hold you to that one. <laughs> well, no, they do a lot of – the film industry is huge up there because a lot of people can't – it's cheaper to film up there than it is down in L.A. now. So a lot of film industry – film types um, are doing their stuff up in Vancouver now. And as far as what you're dealing with up there in Washington or anything like that, what would you consider – I guess do you – do you still consider yourself an Appalachian, or have oh, you yeah. become more acclimated to Pacific Northwest, Scott? Um, no, I still consider myself a Southerner. <laughs> and, you know, Appalachian as well, because, you know, from the hills of East Tennessee. Um, I mean, yeah, I've acclimated here. I, I think probably because my, my personality from the beginning, in ways, was probably more in line with uh, the Pacific Northwest because, you know, this culture here is very influenced by Asians and Scandinavians, right? And those tend to be people, these stereotypes, okay? That's all, uh, and I realize that, but, you know, those cultures a lot of times tend to be somewhat more reserved, more closed off, a little bit shy, and that is the general, you know, I, I guess culture in the Northwest. People... I mean, they're friendly, but they're not, like I said earlier in the conversation, they're not going to go out of their way and tell you their life story, like <laughs> like what might happen to you at the Piggly Wiggly in the South with the cashier. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so, but I still, you know, I still miss the South. And, you know, there are still my days when I actually think about moving back. To tell you the truth, I would love, in many ways, I would probably like to end up in a place like Asheville, to tell you the truth, it's because it's close to home, and, you know, uh, I'm getting older, my mom's getting older, kind of be nice to be close to family, and and that's what I know, you know, that is my home. I consider Tennessee, it's what I know most of all, you know, I even though I've been here for a long time, I don't 100% feel like, you know, like I am a Northwesterner, per se, you know? Gotcha. There's just some differences there. I do miss the South, to tell you the truth, a lot well, of times. Well, I was going to hold off bringing this question up, and mm -hmm. I'll probably follow up with a couple of less retarded ones later. But <laughs> one, just just considering your life experience and everything, mm -hmm. if, if you were to try to tell somebody from Appalachia mm – -hmm. Let's say the confused guy, the confused girl, the person doesn't feel like they fit in. Mm -hmm. What what would you say to them just to kind of be like, hey, listen, I'm not necessarily your mentor, but I can at least say I've lived elsewhere. Right, right. Well, I think, for one, I do think probably, you know, I've been away from the South for a while, but I, I have a feeling that things are – changing there too to a certain degree things are probably becoming a little bit more open accepted and things like that but you know what what i always did find um even back then even back in the 80s and 90s <laughs> uh, there are pockets of 
true authenticity and pockets of liberalism in the South and pockets of enlightened mentalities in the South. Um, and there are lots of them that you can tap into. I feel like I always had people in my life who, even back then, who were very intelligent, very accepting people, very open-minded people, you being one of them, you know, and I always had people like that in my life and they are there, you know, you do have to just seek them out or whatever, probably have to put more effort into it than what you would say in Seattle where it's just going to be, everything is there, you know, and in your face, but it's still there. And I, I do feel that like, if you come out of the South <laughs> and you're a liberal minded person or you're, you're an open-minded person, you are genuinely, authentically that way at that point because you have lived through the other, you know? Like, uh, to me up here, I feel like people are somewhat spoiled because, and I can't always take them seriously because, you know, they'll say things like, oh, well, I'm against racism or I'm against homophobia or I'm against all these things, and they have this progressive mentality, but I often feel that they haven't really been confronted with the issues of those things either. So it's like... Whereas, like, in the South, you grow up with a, a mentality that's anti-gay or anti-just uh, open-mindedness, period. But if you come out of that as a person and you yourself end up being liberal and open-minded, to me, there's a lot more weightiness to that. There's a lot more, like, truthfulness to that to that person's experience or whatever. So and I, I, you have a lot of that. I, mean, I have a lot of friends from the South who... They, their liberalism is truly liberal, you know, and it's not this received liberalism that I feel like a lot of times you get up here. Because up here, that's the norm, right? So you don't really have to think too much for yourself. Whereas, like, if you come out of the South being more of a liberal person, you've had to think for yourself, you know? And that's how I feel about it, but. Okay. Uh, well said. I, I, the only question that I have with what you just said, and maybe it's me just not receiving it the way that you said it, is perceived liberalism. Does that mean there's some sort of weird holdout up there, or no, they just I, don't I, I necessarily I, understand the whole process of growing up, or... Let me correct myself. I said the wrong word. I meant to say received liberalism rather than perceived liberalism. Okay? Received liberalism. In other words, they were born into, comparatively speaking, a liberal environment. But they're also born into this environment that in many ways is homogeneous. <laughs> you know, let's just say this. See, the, the Pacific Northwest is a very white area. Let's just say that. And it's true. Right. And so it's hard for me to 100%, I don't know, to really value someone who claims to be liberal when they themselves have always just, that's just been their experience in life. I, it, it's just, it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to, I don't know, like you, you, to me, you have to have confrontation and you have to go through things on your own and think through things on your own. And I feel like my experience growing up in Tennessee, I had to do that. I just had to do that because what I was was so in opposition to everything around me, you know, that when I came out of that, it was a true authentic experience that I went through. Whereas like people up here might share my same mentalities, my same you know, prejudices even or whatever. But for them, they're just following what they've always known. They didn't have to f fight against anything and come to those conclusions on their own. Is, does that make sense? Uh, no, I, I, I enjoy the way you said that. No. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird thing. So I'm kind of critical. I'm a critical person because like my PhD is in French literature, but it's also, I have a minor in critical theory. So I, I can be, I'm very critical, you know, of things. So... <laughs> <laughs> Understandably so. <laughs> so, um, I was wanting to try to lighten up things a little bit um, mm -hmm. outside of the whole interview process with a game, if you're okay. willing to join in. I'll try, but I'm going to have to go soon because I'm parked on campus right now and I'm kind of I'm on the timer here. So, but yeah. Uh, what kind of time have you got? 
I probably have about uh, 15 more minutes or so. Oh, I'm yeah. Uh, this is five questions, oh, and okay. we're out. I'll try. I'll... So I decided that I would try to take a look at Craigslist up in the Bellingham, Washington area mm-hmm. and try to figure out what would be the top five things that I see listed on Craigslist that an Appalachian may or may not know how to bid upon. Mm. So, Mm. there's five of them. Mm -hmm. If you you get three, I can promise you a decent bottle of wine that will be sent to you from a friend of mine outside of Atlanta. Sorry Uh you didn't get the job there, but... Uh Things well, happen. Take the job there. Oh, <laughs> sorry, you didn't take the job there. <laughs> but um, I'm calling this "It's Gots to Go." Okay. So the first one, and the most recently listed one, is from the 13th of December. Okay. It's a purple couch. Oh, okay. It is listed with. Very minimal description, mm-hmm. simply saying comfy, clean, and few stains. Okay. <laughs> what would you consider offering for this? For a purple couch with a few stains. Yes, sir. Well, I have to come pick it up. Oh, wait, myself. it's clean. Oh, it's clean. Yeah. But I have to come pick it up myself. I, uh, I, I would assume as well. Well, since I have to come pick it up myself... Uh, I think that I think they should put it in the free section, so I can just come pick it up and get it off their hands. No, <laughs> but at the most, I might pay fifty dollars for it if I really liked it. Okay, I'll put that in your category. It was listed for seventy five dollars. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. Okay, here's one from just after Thanksgiving. Okay. This one is a 1997 Dodge Transmission with a 12 van. That's just what everybody needs. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I picked this one, but it also has some of its gearing. Okay. How much would you pay for a partially missing transmission? <laughs> Personally? <laughs> Nothing. But... <laughs> Uh, again, that should be in the free section, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, for a, gosh, I would have no idea. Uh, I'm going to stick with my standard fifty dollars. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you you missed that. They're asking fifty. Oh my god! Yeah, I, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I, I don't have a clue, but it's right down the road from you. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, here's another one from the thirteenth. Okay. A Chevy Malibu for parts. Now, mind you, it has been wrecked, and it still runs great, and the frame is cracked. But it was hit while parked, and that's part of the reason they said it was totaled for the insurance purposes. Oh, okay. How much would you pay for said Malibu? They they didn't give the age of the Malibu? Oh, I'm sorry. It's a 2001. 2001. Oh, Three hundred dollars. Um, I'll give you a second guess on this, just because I really want you to be able to get that bottle of wine. <laughs> and don't double your answer, whatever you do. Uh, don't double it. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'll go for one fifty. <laughs> okay, no. I really meant double your answer. <laughs> Six hundred. There you go. Oh, Look okay. at that. Oh, he got it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and this one may actually fit more into your wheelhouse. Uh huh. It is a book. Okay. By the name of Morality and Moral Controversies. Oh Lord. Now, were you to try to sell this on the black, white, tan, green market? Mm-hmm. What would you be asking? Uh, <laughs> for a book? Uh, apparently, it's got something to do with collegiate studies. Oh, well, then they'd have to pay me to come get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, $20. 
God damn, you hit that right on the head. <laughs> All right, I know my books. No. Nice. <laughs> well, I so, got my morality in order there. No. <laughs> I guess technically, well, no, I gave you that one. So you've got two good. And uh -huh. the fifth one. Okay. And this is by no means a reflection on anything, but... Mm. Sorry, I, I, I just got a giggle in the back of my head about you talking about Asian culture in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, right, right. <laughs> a China cabinet for sale from the 7th of December. Ooh. No broken glass, no scratches, but it is very heavy. Oh. So they're wanting to get rid of it. No. <laughs> oh, that's a toughie. A China glass. That's in decent condition uh, 350 god damn they uh, would be happy to meet you <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I'm, I'm way off base huh? <laughs> it, it, it's listed for a whopping 65 bucks as it's gots to go oh there you go they want to get rid of it <laughs> yes sir <laughs> mm -hmm. I see <laughs> well, well. okay well enough of that so, <laughs> let's say you've got a five-year-old niece or nephew that's just getting ready to step out into the world a little bit. You know his or her family is a little funky. Mm -hmm. What what would you say to them just to kind of encourage them to be them as they get self-actualized? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, let me think here. I guess I would just tell them to, you know, uh, be true to themselves, obviously. Um, don't let other people define you. Don't let other people make you feel, you know, that you can't do something. Um, um, I, and and to me, at least for East Tennessee, I say, you know, you really have to stop yourself from feeling what – there's like a learned helplessness, I think, a lot of times that I've come across in East Tennessee. Like people feel like they can't do anything. They can't change things. They can't get out of things. And, and, and to me, I'm like, you just have to unlearn that. That is just something that you have been taught to keep you fearful, and you need to just – unlearn that so you know go read books go to school go see movies and plays and expose yourself don't don't keep yourself hold up you know expose yourself and and in time you know you will appreciate that it might be a rough journey but once you get to the end of that journey you'll appreciate that you took the time to put yourself out there more i think no I, I really like that and that's it's exactly what i thought you would say in its own uh, weird way yeah 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 well i'd like to take the opportunity to thank scott one more time for joining us here on appalachian pie wanted to also let you know some brands have been in the fire so to speak and we're looking at a couple of new segments i also need to thank the cordovans who I kind of introduced their music to you guys in the intro. Um, Middle Montana was the name of that song. They can be found on Reverb Nation. They're also on Facebook and everything. Feel free to look them up. Cordovans is spelled like Cordovan. So check those guys out. They'll be joining us on the pie. Three good old southern boys from actually Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. So should be a good time to when we get a chance to talk to them. Would also like to thank my partner, William, and once again, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Check us out on iTunes and tune in under Appalachian Pie. Leave a review. Let us know what you like, what you don't. Um, contact us directly at appypie14 at gmail.com, as well as on Twitter at appypie, A-P-P-Y-P-I. See you soon, and in the meantime, enjoy a little bit of mojo to end your day.
You can't kill me, I will not die, not now, not ever, no, never. drink and what I can drink. They want to ban drugs and sex and everything. People want to have a lot of rules, a lot of rules and regulations. But listen up, listen up, Mr. Rules and Regulations. I ain't gonna obey it! What's up, man? I ain't gonna do what you say. Oh, you can put me in jail, you can kill me, you can execute me, but you can't kill rock and roll, man. Tell you another damn thing, I ain't eating no more fucking McDonald's either. I ain't gonna eat it no more. I ain't gonna eat it because it don't taste good. You know what? McDonald's, you kiss my butt! McDonald's, you kiss my butt. It's a great big hairy butt. Got a dingleberry hanging off my butt. McDonald's, kiss my ass. You know... People say, Mojo, you're always complaining about everything. Why don't you vote in the election? Why don't you become involved in the electoral process? Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Vote for Clinton, Mojo. It's going to make everything nice and new and neat. We got one fool, just as big a fool as the other fool. Ain't nothing changed. Same fools riding around in the black cars. We still riding around on the subway. Riding around in the bus. We riding around in a 1978 you know, 1978 El Torino or some damn thing. Leaking all, ain't got no money. Gotta pay taxes, everything's screwed up. I ain't gonna take it no more. I'm gonna start an armed insurrection. I'm gonna go to the hills of West Virginia and I'm gonna liberate some guns from a National Guard armory. And I'm gonna start armed revolt because at some time in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to disassociate yourself the ties that bind. I wanna break them ties. Bust them up. So there I am standing around a campfire in the hills of West Virginia. 
and the flames are shooting up high. And I happen to be the head of the armed insurrection of Rebel Alliance. And I'm going to sing our brand new, our brand new national anthem that goes something like this. You can't kill me. I will not die. Not now. Not ever. No, never. Wow. I'm going to live a long, long time. My soul is on forever. Full of holes, but you can't kill the spirit of rock and roll, baby!